Clementine Ford makes people mad. Clementine Ford has cemented herself into the culture war with her no-holds-barred brand of modern feminist commentary in her columns and books. The 40-year-old Melbourne feminist first made a name for herself writing for The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald about body image, abortion, rape culture and violence against women. Clementine divides people across Australia as to whether she's an incendiary feminist hero or a man-hating ball-breaker. Clem and I have had our uh, our run-ins. I also have a gripe with you saying things like kill all men. My, my big gripe with Clementine is she can say what she wants. I'm from Melbourne, Victoria, and our city council's funding her. <laughs> Clem's Twitter history is a messy one, and she's been taken to task for some pretty off comments, including saying that all men should die and that coronavirus isn't killing men fast enough. Clem says those comments were made in jest. Today, she's the single mother of a gorgeous four-year-old boy and her ardent followers find her on Instagram and TikTok instead. While she's still a feminist firebrand, counselling her fans to leave their husbands and calling out badly behaved men on social media, her public and private persona have kind of softened. Clem is just as likely to be found giving makeup tips, cooking delicious vegan meals or promoting sex toys to her hundreds of thousands of fans. Coming up next, the weekend list. But first, here's my conversation with Clementine Ford about Valentine's Day, dating during a pandemic, the different kinds of love, and whether, sometimes, she has taken her feminism too far. Clem, Valentine's Day is tomorrow, and whether we like the stereotype or not, there are going to be a whole bunch of disappointed women and confused men over this weekend. Is this a celebration that we need to make over? Look, I'm not going to say that anyone shouldn't celebrate Valentine's Day if they want to. If it's a holiday that is meaningful to them and their significant other or others, then that's fine. I don't want to harsh anyone's buzz. But we should remember that it was a holiday designed by Hallmark to sell cards and to sell sell an idea of, uh, you know, an aspirational life. I've never really celebrated Valentine's Day, partially because I've rarely had a significant other on Valentine's Day, but it just feels, I don't know, it's its like one of the, it's like Mother's Day. Every day should be a celebration of the people that you love. Maybe not to the extent of flowers and balloons, but to sort of identify one day in the year where you say, well, this is the day where I'm going to pull out all the stops. I'm going to do something really nice for my partner. Maybe try and do nice things for your partner all the time. (laughs) I remember explaining to my now husband when we were first dating that he had to send flowers to my all-female office. Not so much for me, but so I didn't look bad Mm. in front of everyone else, which I think talks to it being a complicated day. You're currently writing a book about love. Can you tell us a bit about it? The book is called How We Love, and it's very different to my first two books. If anyone listening to this has read my first two books, you will probably remember them as being very feminist in nature, which this book is too, because I think that when you're a feminist, everything is infused with your political values. But this is a book of personal essays as opposed to a political manifesto. When I say to people it's a book about love, people are automatically trained and conditioned by the world we live in to assume that I mean romantic love because romantic love is given a primacy and an importance over all other forms of love, which I actually think is is not particularly helpful and not really particularly reflective of the importance that love has in all of our lives. 
this will be particularly resonant probably to a lot of women listening to this, the idea that we didn't really begin to experience life fully until we found someone to validate that life for us. That like, I'm waiting for my life to begin kind of thing. Exactly. I mean, you said before that when you and your husband started seeing each other, that it was very important for you to have him send flowers to your all-female office so that you could, um, I guess, showcase the this love that you had, had found because this is, the again, the diet that we kind of fed, that the most important thing, particularly in a heterosexual context, whether or not you are heterosexual or not, I'm not, but what you do in order to fulfil your role or your ambition as a woman is find someone to pick you. And in a heterosexual world, that is obviously a man. And I wrote about that in my first book, Fight Like a Girl. I felt an inadequacy that I I failed to live up to the expectations of womanhood that I felt were being, that, that I felt existed in the world that I lived in. How did you fail? Or how did you think you'd failed rather? I mean, I was tall, I was freckled, I was I describe it as galumphing, you know, this galumphing girl that walked through the world. I associated femininity and aspirational womanhood with the the smaller, lithe girls around me who boys could pick up and they could squeal in mock indignation to be put down. Whether or not that is true or not, that to me is what signified aspirational femininity. And I felt so outside of that. that and what I absorbed from that and what I experienced in that feeling was if I can't be that, then I'm not a real girl at all. I don't have validity in this world if a boy doesn't want me. And I, I think that, that is, those are feelings that a lot of us have had. As I've gotten older, of course, my views on that have changed and it's been a process unlearning a lot of those things. But in terms of writing this book and getting older and experiencing the richness of other forms of love, I have begun to well, not even begun. I'm very far into the process of placing far less primacy on the idea of romantic love as something that supersedes all others. I love that you've just said that. And I'm now going to ask you about romantic love. We're going to get to the other love, I promise. <laughs> I um, was going through a bit of your back catalogue and I came across this article you wrote for Kill Your Darlings more than 10 years ago, mm-hmm. which speaks to how old we both are, not just you. And We're in the prime of our life, Jamila. Yeah, apparently. In it, you said, RSVP is Australia's largest dating site, which also means it features Australia's largest collection of unintelligent, buffoonish, motorhead morons. Now, I know from your Bumble and Tinder screenshots, it's a jungle out there now. Have dating apps gotten better or have they gotten worse? (laughs) Well, firstly, RSVP is clearly no no longer the front. RIP, RSVP. Yeah, RIP, RSVP. And I would also just say, you know, to be a little bit po-faced for a moment, if I were writing that today, I wouldn't use that language, you know. I, look, I think that the problem with dating apps is that it's a smorgasbord and the swipe culture actually does not lend itself to anything other than continually swiping. Someone once said to me that dating apps are designed to keep you single and I think that that's a really good observation because we're always looking for the next best thing or or something better. And that plays into our idea that there is a perfect the one out there. And now I think that the one or the concept of the one is ridiculous. There are many, many people who you can build a life with if indeed you want to build a life with one other person. And no one is going to be your soulmate in the way that romantic comedies and Hollywood has presented to us. Even Jane Austen, who I love and adore did not really have practical experience of romance and marriage and has contributed, I think, in this 
in in some small way to this idea that you can find someone and, and mould them and change them to love you and you'll live happily ever after. I was recently thinking, because I actually am going to have a chapter about Pride and Prejudice in this book, which is about, as I said, all, all sorts of different forms of love. So many women want to be Elizabeth Bennet, but I don't know that there are many men out there who are dreaming of being Mr Darcy. <laughs> My affections and wishes are unchanged. But one word from you will silence me on this subject forever. No, we should go on a hunt and see if we can <laughs> see if we can find any. That would be interesting to me. Your co-parenting, being a single mum during a pandemic is a pretty big ask because you've got periods of time where it's you parenting alone and also working and trying mm. to support that family. How did life change for you during the lockdown? Economically and financially, I have more privilege than most other single mums. I also, as I said, co-parent with someone who is very devoted to his son. He has him 50% of the time so that I was not having to wake up every day for weeks on end parenting a child by myself. And also, and very importantly, I didn't really have to deal with the toxicity of an ex-partner who exacerbated all of those issues for me. So I feel really, really lucky in that sense. And it was still really hard for me. So the, the fact that there were so many people out there who survived, I just want to clap for you for doing that. That is incredible because it was not an easy task at all. But then over time, what I found happened was all of the rush, rush, rush that we're so used to in everyday life and that we were definitely so used to pre-pandemic really helped me to slow down and appreciate this very special, precious time in my son's life. And again, I'm writing about this in my book, in the chapter about my son and, and the way that has changed my perspective on love or has given me, I should say, given me an additional perspective on love, not one that's any better or worse than anything else. I don't believe in saying that you don't know love until you've had a child. I think it's just a different kind of love. But I've really felt like it was a gift in the end because I, I could see on a different timeline. And so what I ended up having was this enforced period of time where we couldn't go anywhere or do anything that would be distracting. So we just had to get to know each other in a different way. And, and it, was, it was really, in obviously in a non-romantic sense, it was a really beautiful love affair. You said that your love for your little boy is different to other kinds of love you've experienced. How is it different? When I had my son, I was terrified. I brought him home from the hospital and I looked at him on the bed. He was two days old and I had this feeling wash out over me and I felt deep in my bones, I've made a terrible mistake. And it wasn't because I regretted having this baby or this child. It was because the enormity of the responsibility that laid out before me for the rest of my life was suddenly there starkly and clearly in my mind. But there was this other part of me that had never really reared its voice before. Maybe it was the voice of my own mother coming through somewhere from the depths, just saying, you can't think that way. I, you can't let the anxiety of that overtake you as it would have done in the past. And I feel like that was the moment. It wasn't the moment where I began to love my son because that took quite a few weeks, as, as is so common for so many Same for me. birth parents. Yeah. And not a lot of people talk about that because there there's a deep sense of shame about not instantly falling in love with your child. But it's like anything. You have to get to know a person before you can truly love them. So this voice in my head said, stop it, just stop it, shut it down straight away. And since then, I feel like what I've really learned about 
motherhood and the concept of sacrifice is not the romanticised idea of a sacrificial love where the mother is the martyr and she does everything for the child and this is, this is how she, she feels true happiness. It was actually the sense that there was something in my life that could be more important than me. Something that I found really interesting to reflect on is my sense of love for myself. And as I said, I went through my adolescence feeling less than a lot of the time, feeling like I didn't really measure up. And for a lot of my adult life as well, I felt quite suspicious of love that's come my way. It's been interesting looking at this young human and reckoning with the fact that he loves me unconditionally. What does that mean to be unconditionally loved by someone. The love between a parent and a child is unfortunately always destined to not match up with the other. You know, I I think of him and me as being like two ships in the night. And at some point we may be sailing side by side and that is the moment, the brief moment of time where we love each other exactly the same and we are equally as interested in each other as humans. But he's going to sail right on by and he's going to go out into the world and I'm just going to, and that's fine, you know, because I'm the mum that helped him to do that. And that's what we should want for our children. We should want them to leave us. And this is what's so interesting about that form of love is that it is the only love that we experience where we ultimately, for it to be successful, we want them to leave us behind. You're going to make me cry. I've got to change the subject because <laughs> we've got to move on. I've got to move on. I'm not thinking about my son sailing off into the night. You tweeted something during the pandemic back in May that caught a lot of attention and it caught my attention. You said, honestly, the coronavirus isn't killing men fast enough. This most recent comment was in incredibly poor taste. Honestly, the coronavirus isn't killing men fast enough. Offensive and exclusive to a rather large chunk of the population, (laughs) half of the community that is, um, and that is men. I think unsurprisingly the backlash to that tweet was pretty swift and I think you lost a City of Melbourne grant as a result. That was finally too much even for Lord Mayor Sally Capp who has ordered a review into how this grant was ever awarded to such a woman. How do you justify that? I don't. I'm not going to sit here and try and justify it. It was indefensible. I can say what led to me writing that tweet, and I will, I will explain that now not by way of excusing it or minimising it because I, I'm, I'm fully prepared to own that, and I, and I did own it at the time. Um, maybe not in the immediate 24 hours following it, but after I sat and reflected on it, I realised that it was an indefensible tweet. There are a couple of things going on here. Firstly, that I thought I thought at the time that it was so hyperbolic that it would be read as satire. And yet, as someone explained to me afterwards, the problem with that is that actually a lot of men were being killed by it coronavirus. Yeah. And most of them were low-income men of colour who lacked access to healthcare, Uh, A lot of them in America, obviously, black and Hispanic men were dying. And once I reflected on that, I thought, that is indefensible, what I've said. And I apologised. It's not up to me to say that people should accept that apology. They're entitled to their opinion after that. I felt really ashamed about what I'd said. Uh, I didn't have the City of Melbourne grant taken away from me. I voluntarily gave it up because I felt like the attacks on 
the city as a result of me were distracting from a very important grant process. We should allow grant processes to be independent and we should support controversial art. But I, I felt like I just wanted to remove myself from the narrative and accept it and, and own that I did do the wrong thing. Shortly after that, I decided to leave Twitter, not as, you know, a dog running away with my tail between my legs, but because I realised it was a really toxic place for me. If this is the discourse, then it's not a healthy place for someone to be. And leaving Twitter actually has been one of the most incredible things that I've done for my mental health. I feel like it, had I stayed on it during the pandemic and during the lockdown, I think it would have I would have gotten to some really dark places, fought with a lot of people. I feel so much less primed for a fight now. And because of that, my anxiety response, my fight or flight response has been way tuned down and it's had such an, a positive impact on my life. Clem, thanks for being part of the Weekend Briefing. It's been an absolute pleasure, Jamila, as it always is to speak to you. Clementine Ford's new book, How We Love, will be released by Alan and Unwin later this year. In the meantime, you can find her on Instagram or TikTok, but not on Twitter. Next up, The Weekend List with Tate McGregor. Welcome to The Weekend List, where we tell you what you should be reading, watching, listening, cooking, seeing, doing through the rest of the weekend. And I'm so excited to be joined by Tate McGregor, but I am pumped about my recommendation, so I'm going first, Tate. Go for it. I have been listening to Wild by Sarah Wilson, which is her new podcast where she talks to the world's big minds about living a a more beautiful and I suppose a more fired up life. Her first episode is with Sia, someone who notoriously kind of hides from the media. And Sarah herself is a massive fan and she makes herself incredibly vulnerable when she's talking to Sia. And the result is an incredible conversation. I've also got bipolar. I've also got thyroid disease. Um, and I've also been quite oh. vocal on um, several suicide attempts. And now I foster children and I just feel somewhat of a connection with you. Yeah. I almost think that those four things must come as a package, you know. You got one, you, you get them all. Well, I would agree. And I would also go back to your psychiatrist. I don't know when you got diagnosed with bipolar, but it, I, for me it turned out that that was a misdiagnosis and that I was actually, I had complex PTSD. They often get mixed up. She doesn't do too many interviews, so that's a huge get to have her on. I think so. And now I never go to the movies, Tate, but you've got one for me. So this one's in cinemas, but you can also find it on Netflix. It's called Malcolm and Marie, and it's created by the same creator as Euphoria, Sam Levinson, who also brings along Zendaya, and John David Washington, who you'd know from Tenant or The Black Klansman. I haven't seen this yet, but I'm planning on watching it this weekend. It looks so good by the trailer. It's black and white, and it's basically about the details of a relationship almost in lockdown. I believe this was actually filmed through lockdown, which is really interesting. It's a big project to come out of that. Mystery. The unknown. It's what supports the tension of a relationship. You're angry. No. The what-if factor. Marie. 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 What if there's someone who loved them better? 
I can get into it if I can get it on Netflix, but you're not going to find me in a cinema again anytime <laughs> soon. I'm too scarred by the Melbourne lockdown. I've got something for those who like cooking on the weekend. I am definitely one of those. And if you're switching off now and saying, I like eating, not cooking, give it a go. I promise you it's almost a kind of mindfulness. Helen Go has a new cake, which is apple and lime. Sounds good, but stay with me. And parsnip. That is wild. What a, what a flavour combo. It is, right? It sounds odd, but it absolutely works. It's ridiculously delicious. And parsnip works in cakes kind of the same way a carrot does. You think it's not going to be there for you, but it brings this kind of sweet, earthy flavour to the cake. And it looks really pretty and you get to stick limes on the top of it. And I think everyone should be trying some more cooking out. I'm going to give this a whirl. Maybe I'll have it during my movie session. That's it for the weekend briefing. If you want to make sure you never miss an episode, then please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, leave a rating and a review. It helps more people to find the briefing. Coming up Monday, Tom and Annika will be here in your headphones getting the latest headlines right into your ears. That's all for now. A podcast one production.